Hello and welcome to JOSPT Insights, the podcast that aims to help you translate quality research to quality practice. I'm Claire Ardern, the Editor-in-Chief of the Journal of Orthopaedic and Sports Physical Therapy. It's great to have you listening today. Over the next two episodes of JOSPT Insights, we're diving into managing Achilles tendon problems. There aren't too many people who are better placed to help guide us through the best research on Achilles tendon problems and how to apply that knowledge to our clinical practice than Dr. Karen Silbernagel from the University of Delaware. As well as teaching the next generation of physical therapists at Delaware, Karen also leads the very productive and clinically focused tendon research laboratory at the university. And we're also fortunate to benefit from her expertise as a member of the senior editorial team at JOSPT. Over the next two episodes, we'll cover Achilles tendinopathy and Achilles tendon rupture. And today we started with a classic clinical case of Achilles tendinopathy. You've got a middle-aged woman come in and see you at the clinic. She's a runner. She's been having some problems with her Achilles tendon of late. She keeps trying to up her training for a half marathon and the tendon's just not coping with it. How would you start your diagnostic process with her? That's a really good question and it's definitely a typical case too that we see. I think the most important part is to start with really understanding of what has she done? Where is her symptoms? And always perform a good clinical exam because a lot of people think they have pain in the Achilles tendon, but they might have pain in other areas as well. So I've learned that from my mistakes because often I start talking about Achilles tendinopathy and then their pain is under the foot or something. So you always need to do a good clinical exam. We in our clinic too sometimes use ultrasound imaging, but I think the main thing is it's a clinical exam to looking at if they have Achilles tendinopathy, if they have pain and symptoms from the Achilles tendon, they're tender to palpation. And the other test you can do is really to do a single leg hop and see if they have pain when they're doing that and also rating the pain. So just remember it's a clinical diagnosis that you need to do. And the single leg hop, is that just one hop or are you getting them to do repeated hops? Really what we do is like jumping rope, but jump on one leg. Okay. So it's kind of, a, we tend to do 10 in the clinic. So I do 10 jumps and then I have them rate the pain and that usually reproduces symptoms. So that along with palpation um, are the two main things that you can really use. When you do your hopping, are you getting them to land on toes or do you care if they land on their toes and come down onto their heel? Do you care about the, how they do the hopping or is it just the pain? For that is mainly the pain, but it's important that it's not 10 counter movement jumps. It's basically 10 hopping, just like they're jumping rope. Okay, so it's pain and symptoms. We use the standard questionnaires partly to the visa score for Achilles tendon. And we also use our clinical interview, I think is very important. You always, when did it start? How did it start? To understand where they are in the process, how long has it been going on? Usually they come because it's been bothering them and they can't run. But if you talk to them, a lot of times it's been pain maybe on and off for the last six months or things have changed over the course of the time. So you really need to understand when it started, when did the, maybe the stiffness and those feelings might have started a lot earlier than the actual pain when they're coming in. Are some patients coming in and, and talking about different diagnoses that they might have read about on Google? How do they come in and describe to you what their problem is? The biggest thing is if it's called tendonitis or it's called tendinopathy and what are the differences with these things. Achilles tendinopathy is a term that we use for people to have pain and symptoms 
from the Achilles tendon, the tendinopalpation, that also has pain with loading. We went from in the late 1990s, called it Achilles tendonitis all the time, and we assumed it was this inflammatory condition. If it's inflammation, we should rest, we should use ice, we should use anti-inflammatory, and we were really concerned with loading. And then there was a shift to that this is not an inflammatory condition, and people were looking into there was not a lot of inflammatory cells in the tendon, and we talked about it more as an overuse degenerative problem, heavy loading the tendons because it was no longer an inflammatory condition. And I think that really helped us because a tendon needs mechanical load to heal. Let's talk about load then, because I think this is really our central pillar of managing tendinopathy. Can you share with us your top clinical tips for how you would approach load management with this middle-aged runner who wants to run a half marathon? all comes down to, I think, load management or loading because the tendon needs mechanical loading to recover. So that's when we're really looking at physical therapists from the basis of exercise and exercise rehabilitation. But then you also talk about load management because it's an overuse injury, so you might have to alter the loading. So how do you handle that when somebody comes in? And especially a lot of the runners, I'm telling them you need to do heel rises to load the tendon. Then they tell me, well, I'm running all the time, so am I not loading the tendon? And I think the clinical way to describe that to a patient is that I always say, well, do you know what a marathon runner looks like? And they say, of course. And I say, do you know what a weightlifter looks like? And they say, of course. I said, they don't look the same. And they will probably train the same amount. But the way you train or the kind of uh, loading that you're doing matters. And it matters for the tendon too. So for the running, you have this repetitive, same kind of loading over time, fatiguing of the tendon. Versus when we do the heel rises, we really want to load the tendon putting it on a tension over time to see that we can get the good responses to the tendon. So those are the things that really need to work on, and that's where the clinical guidance and things comes in. The other part that is really a problem with the load management, too, is to kind of really find out where they are at and how much pain do they have with the loading and how do we adjust those. Is pain bad? Should I make sure that I don't have pain at all when I'm trying to manage this condition? We used to, when we thought it was inflammatory, we really tried to wait till the pain disappeared before we were going to load anything. And with my research in the early 2000s, really what we started to see was that you needed to load the tendon. And if you load the tendon, it's going to be painful. But if you don't load it, it's not going to heal or recover. So we use a pain monitoring model that Roland Tomei started using in the 90s for patellofemoral pain. We used it for tendinopathy in general to really guide that the loading because you can't wait for the zero pain. But we kind of have a, this pain monitoring model then that zero being no pain, 10 being the worst imaginal pain. And then we describe it a pain up to five is acceptable. We have the safe zone, really zero to two is no worries whatsoever, but we're allowing up to five with loading. And using that, I think it really helps the patient because they don't know what to do with the pain. They come in, the pain is obviously an indication in their mind that this is not anything good. That's why they're coming because of the symptoms. And then we tell them they need to load and how do you have a conversation about that? So I think the pain monitoring model is a very good tool to teach them that, okay, you can load, it's really important for your tendon, and try to find that balance of avoiding overload but getting positive loading to the tendon. There are always questions about, is 5 out of 10 the right limit? So I think it doesn't really matter if it's exactly 5 or you feel like you want to have 4 as a limit, but I think it's very important to have this discussion and understand where they are. And we use training diaries to document the pain for every day. And really what we document is the morning pain, 
how do you feel in the morning? What is the worst pain and the lowest pain every day? That's exactly what we document in the pain with the exercises. And we're following that over time. Do I have to stop running? That's another really good question. And it was the question, actually, when I was doing my PhD thesis, we had this exercise program and we knew they got better with loading and they were um, the heavier loading was better than just doing gentle loading. So we were really excited about that. And the questions for all the runners and anybody physically active is, well, do I have to stop? We did a study that we actually looked at, is it a difference in recovery if you're allowed to continue running and jumping using the pain monitoring model and allowing for recovery days between those heavy loads? Or we had the other group that was not allowed to do any running and jumping for the first six weeks. And both groups did their exercise program. And what we saw over that period of time was there was no significant difference between the groups and how they recovered over time over a year. First six weeks, the group that did not run and jump actually had a little bit maybe decrease of symptoms because they didn't uh, push it. But as soon as they started some other more activity, they kind of even out. And for the progression over time, there was no negative effect. And I think the best benefit of that is that you have really high compliance. So what I'm hearing is that there's a lot of discussion and education going on here. How much of your clinical consultation is talking and how much of it is doing exercises or other stuff? Well, I'm a talker, so I think it's a lot of talking, but I think that the education is absolutely key in getting people started because these Achilles tendinopathy can take up to a year to recover. So having coming to me two or three times a week to do the rehab exercises is not necessary. But to do the exercises daily or find a program that works for them is really important. And it's really on them. So we really talk about what is the recovery? What are the expectations? I really give a lot of information that you are going to reach plateaus during the rehab and you think you're not getting better. And that's absolutely normal. So a lot of this really setting the stage of the understanding. And I actually tell them that I don't consider them full recover unless they've had a year of no symptoms. That is really where we're getting to. So that's you should continue with some of the exercises and loading throughout that time. But for the first visit and things too, you should not just talk either, right? The physical exam is really important. Understanding what are their functional deficits? What are their pain and symptoms? We also do a lot of questionnaires sometimes for fear of movement, or the fear for them to returning, or the other psychological aspects that might be really important. And what are their desires? And, you know, we work with elite athletes or runners. What are their plans? When are they hoping to get back? Are there big uh, time trials coming up? Are there various things? You need to put all that in perspective and kind of then design the plan together with them. It's not you telling them what to do. You're designing it together. You talked about fear of movement and um, goals for returning from the ACL field, we're seeing more and more research highlighting psychological aspect of recovery and returning to sports. Are there parallels with, with Achilles tendinopathy that you see? We see it, and we um, some of the research we're doing, we can see that there are various, some groupings of people, and some people definitely are a lot more fearful with the pain. And those that have had symptoms for more than six months have higher levels of kinesiophobia or fear of movement than the ones with shorter times, uh, symptoms less than six months. It's, it makes sense that people have had pain, um, if they had pain and they try to rest and they start running again, or the pain gets worse and they continue, at some point you're starting to get like, am I doing something really 
wrong here or not? Is this pain dangerous? What what should I do? And really, I think that what we're doing, it's really, I think a lot of the education is really important to address and understand what are they fearful of or what are their concerns when returning? And then looking at the expectations too. And I, one of the things I think patients tell me that really beneficial is they're always going to have a setback. And I tell them, you are going to have a setback. That's just going to happen. And so when they have a setback, a lot of them comes back and say, yep, I've had my setback, but you told me I was going to have it. So then they're not quite as concerned about it. What does the training diary look like? Is it all written down on a bit of paper? Is there some fancy app that you use? How do you structure a training diary? So we're kind of a little bit old school, but we use a piece of paper every day. They write in their date. There is a box for writing your home or exercises or the rehab program. There is a box for document other activity, which could be running, jumping, but it could be gardening. It could be any kind of heavy physical activity. And there's another box documenting the pain, pain in the morning, worst, least pain, and pain while doing the exercises or running and jumping, and other comments they have. So they write that for every day. So usually one week on one side of the piece of paper, and they follow that over time. We also have that paper as an electronic version, so they can fill it in as a PDF. I had a patient contacted me the other day and he's like, do I really need to continue filling out these training diaries? Do you really need them? I'm like, yes, I want you to continue. And part of that, I think it's really important that it keeps them accountable for what they're doing. Because if you, you don't write down that you did the exercises, if you didn't do it, you can easily tell me that you did the exercises every week, but writing it down is slightly harder to do. But I think it's important to really follow it over time to really see when they stabilize. Or when they hit a plateau, a lot of times when you can see when that plateau comes, maybe you need to kind of jumpstart the rehab again or make some changes. However, if you are doing training diaries, you have to make sure you look at it. There's nothing more irritating to have homework and the teacher doesn't look at it. So if they're doing training diaries, you have to look at it. You have to make sure that you're following it over time. Let's talk about the specific rehab program and the exercise selection. I want to get your thoughts on where are we at with exercise prescription for managing tendinopathies now, Karen? I think what's really important to understand is that the tendon doesn't really know what the muscle does. The tendon, so if the muscle working concentrically, eccentrically, isometrically, the tendon doesn't really have an understanding of that. The tendon really only knows how long you put it under tension, how much tension you put it on. And from Healthy's um, research, you can see that the tendon probably remodel and gets stronger better if you have longer tension and heavier tension over time. So that's why if you do exercises, doing the any heel rises for the Achilles tendinopathy, concentric, eccentric, or isometric, as long as that tension over time. And you can find the right way to do the exercise to help the patient. So I don't think that the muscle contraction is not what you should focus on. You should focus on trying to load the tendon. But let's say, for example, a patient has difficulty doing a heel rise, then you might be able to do just a TheraBand, concentric and eccentric. That loads the tendon too. Or you can have uh, maybe stand them and have them hold it isometrically. Or you can have them do an eccentric contraction. You can find the way to try to load the tendon. A lot of times for Achilles tendinopathy, what we do, the first exercise we always do is bilateral heel rises up and down. It's perfect. They can cheat as much as they want. They do the healthy side and that knows how the 
so the body knows how to perform the heel rise and then it's easier to do it on the injured side as well. And a lot of times, as soon as they warm up, they feel a lot better. So I think anytime you can do something lighter exercise before you do the heavier one, they feel warmed up and they feel less stiff and then they can do the other exercise. So really the loading is what's important and then designing the program what to do. Um, our rehab program is bilateral heel rises, single leg and adding eccentric heel rises, but we do it once a day. Uh, and now in Denmark, they have the heavy, slow resistance training. They say you can do that three times a week. And really, when you're looking at the outcomes of these, they're fairly similar. Then I think the other challenging thing or the other question that lots of athletes and patients will have is I want to get back to my sport and performing well. How do you approach this challenging transition? So we really uh, looked into that to kind of find a way. So what we decided to do is that we use the pain monitoring model, both based on our study that patient can continue running and jumping. So we find an activity that doesn't cause pain more than a five. So let's say for a runner, maybe they can walk every day. That's not an issue. But let's say for running, they're going to get back to running. Okay, we can maybe find an activity that is running three miles will not cause them a pain more than five and no more than five the next day. So that's how we're designing the, the activities. And then we're really trying from these heavy activities to have three recovery days. We also are looking at, when I was working some of the high jumpers and things, to really, how do we design the program? And one of the things that they were working on too was like they wanted to get the plyometrics in, but they didn't want to overload. So they were doing a little bit of plyometrics every day. And that really gives not enough load to the tendon to get a response from the rehab and also provided for no recovery. So what we've seen in this shift is that you're much better off doing heavy loading that you can tolerate one day and then give it three recovery days before you're doing it again. And a lot of times when the patient sees and even runners or if you do plyometrics is that you can do a heavy load, the next day you're going to be a lot more sore you feel a lot more that day after. The second day after, yeah, you feel a little bit. It's starting to feel good. The third day after, you think you're ready to start again, but we want you to not do it that way. We do it until the fourth day for the heavy loading. And that really seems to be able to build the ability to continue running and jumping and building up your tolerance. So for runners, they get really frustrated because that means you can run one and a half time a week and then never fits in with their schedule. So we've designed that we can actually, if the heavy loading activities, you need three recovery days, but we can also design some activities to be maybe lighter, and then you need two recovery days. And what this has really come out to be um, is that runners tend to run less, but they also describe they have much more of a quality run. Because one of the things I realized too is like, how do I rate how heavy that activity is? Well, not only based on the symptoms, but is that enough of a loading for you, the specific athlete in front of them? And that really matters in how much they can rate it. So we use the Borg scale for them to rate how heavy they feel the activity is or much strain it is on their Achilles tendon. For runners, not on their breathing or those kind of things, but how heavy would you rate it? And we use the Borg scale for that to kind of find the level of load. Because a high-level elite runner versus me going back to running is very, very different. So we use kind of that whole a model to put it together to find a program of, okay, heavy loading every three, every four days. You can put a middle, middle, medium load activity with two recovery days. And then we design this program over time. And we tend to design the program for the returning to running three weeks at a time. And then we adjust every three weeks. To kind of and at the end of the program is the idea that you the athlete only goes back 
unrestricted with no pain or can I be running, can this middle-aged runner be running, do her half marathon with Achilles tendon pain? During this time, a lot of times they have uh, pain kind of when we start. Goal is not when we're doing this program to kind of get back. It's not necessarily to decrease the pain. It's to have the pain level the same but increasing the loading. And then eventually when we get to where they are, we're hoping that the pain is going to decrease and we want to get people to 100% recovered with no pain with their activity. You might not be able to get pain-free and you can still do a half marathon. But you need to realize you're going to have a setback afterwards. But I've had people that say, this is my goal. I've been doing this run for, you know, 20 years. I don't want to stop. I want to do it. So then we decide in the program to try to get them so they can get through it. Do you see any role for treatment adjuncts like injections or massage or cupping or any of these other types of adjuncts that people might read about online? There's a lot of adjuncts, and I think there's a lot of basic science research trying to improve some of those uh, biologics and doing this. There's a lot of things going on out there, but there's very little, actually, that has evidence more than exercise. So I think sometimes people just add those things, but really it's the loading and the exercise and over time that is of main importance. There are some evidence maybe for shockwave, if you have more of an insertional problem. So there are various things that might help. But in general, PRP has not been shown to have any evidence. There's very limited evidence on injection therapies in general. Massaging the tendon, there's no evidence for that. It's the mechanical loading and the loading over time that is the most important. What about imaging? Is there a role for imaging in diagnosis, in your monitoring of recovery? Does imaging fit into this picture? Yeah, so we use a lot of ultrasound imaging. So I'm a bit biased for ultrasound imaging in general. But for diagnosis, you don't need it. It's, it's the clinical diagnosis that you have pain on palpation, you have pain when you're loading the tendon. And there's a lot of discussion in the clinical world. Does structure matter? Does what you see on ultrasound imaging matter or not? I think it's really important to see that ultrasound imaging, I think, in, in the point of care, and we see it more and more in clinical practice, is really beneficial to kind of help you with differential diagnosis, to see where you're pushing where the pain of palpation is. If it's not in the tendon, it could be something else, to looking at various things. And then it also helps you maybe follow things over time. But I think the clinical part is more important. But what we do see is changes in structure doesn't always follow what the symptoms is, but you can have decreased symptoms and still have deficits in function, and we can have structural changes. So they don't 100% overlap, but we do see that the thicker a tendon is, the more changes within the tendon, the longer the recovery is. And we do see that some of those thickening or the degree of changes actually does relate to symptoms. But it's important to see that some people might have some changes but don't have, change, don't have pain, but it might affect their function. So I think imaging is going to be better, and we're working a lot on really trying to understand what, do, what does it mean what you see on imaging. What I really like it for, too, is we can actually visualize muscle. We can visualize if you're doing a plantar flexion. Are you using purely your flexor halus as long as, or is your soleus activated, or how does the medial lateral grass stroke look? Is Achilles tendinopathy a precursor for Achilles tendon rupture? That's an interesting question. And a lot of people describe it as the tendinopathy is the progression and then the end result will be a complete rupture. But for Achilles tendinopathy and Achilles tendon rupture, it's not. 
the patients that have, have Achilles tendinopathy are not the ones that ruptures. And the ones that get a rupture very rarely have had symptoms before. Part of it might be, and this is my personal opinion too, but I think if you have pain from the Achilles tendinopathy, you are not loading it as high as quickly so you're not getting the ruptures. So I think actually the pain might be protective from the ruptures. Uh, and the rupture people, they've never had the symptoms, but we do think that the tendon in the tendon rupture has been overloaded and is not as healthy and as strong. So it might be that they have some changes but not have had pain. The other thing that's really interesting is if, so I say people with Achilles tendinopathy come in and you talked about fear of being loaded and a lot of them come in and are fearful for having a complete rupture. And I can easily tell them that people with tendinopathy, they're not the ones that rupture, so you don't have to worry about that. Well, when you say never, you should never say never. I had a few patients that actually have had a rupture from uh, after having Achilles tendinopathy, and sometimes that's like stepping in a hole or missing the sidewalk edge or doing something with a forceful dorsiflexion. The interesting thing is as soon as they rupture, they have no pain anymore. Thanks for joining us for part one on managing Achilles tendon problems. Don't forget to stay tuned for part two, where we tackle planning a rehabilitation program for someone with an Achilles tendon rupture from injury diagnosis right through return to play and beyond. Thanks for listening to this episode of JOSPT Insights. For more discussion of the issues in musculoskeletal rehabilitation that are relevant to your practice, subscribe to JOSPT Insights on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, TuneIn, Stitcher, Google, or your favourite podcast app. If you like JOSPT Insights, help others find us. Tell your friends and colleagues and rate and review us. To keep up to date with all the latest JOSPT content, be sure to follow us on Twitter, we're at JOSPT, and Facebook, where JOSPT official. Talk with you next time.